Like I said, I've got a longer message, so I want to move fast to this first part. Um, The majority of the message today is going to be out of James 4. And James 4 is a very difficult chapter. It's, 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 James, I've, I've made this joke before, you know, if, if the book of John uh, was just a loving, gentle lamb of a man just shepherding you and pulling you with meekness into, you know, a, a deeper relationship with God, James is, is more like a, a, a Mike Tyson just punching you in the face and beating you into submission. Like, there's just, he's just, there's just a deeper, stronger, more direct verbiage in the book of James. And sometimes, in some seasons of our life, we need that. We may not ever like it, but there's some seasons where we need that. And, and James 4 is, is, is a deep, just direct gut punch uh, in, in some ways. And I think the reason why people struggle with it so much is because James, as well as Paul and Peter and John, they're aware of, a, of the deepest connection that we have with Christ. That, that they're very aware of a certain uh, type of relationship that we actually have with Jesus that most of us don't really know or don't really think about and, and, and when it comes to day-to-day living. And so once we know the heart of James, once we, we know what he's speaking to in the context of James 4, then some of these words and some of the, the harshness actually dissipates once you see James' heart and what he's really speaking to. And to really understand that, I think we need to start with Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, to really understand the language that James is speaking to in James 4. And so in Ephesians 5, um, Paul is just teaching the, the church of Ephesus about marriage and about the depths of marriage and the intimacy of marriage. And, and in the middle of this, he drops a very profound mystery about our deep, intimate relationship and connection to Jesus. And, and I want to read this to you because we have to get this. And if we can understand this, then James is going to come to life in a brand new way. And so this is, this is what he says in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he says, this is what marriage is. He says, marriage is when a man finds a woman that he deeply loves and wants to spend the rest of his life with, that he leaves behind everything. He comes to her, he he makes her his wife, and he clings to her, and they become one and united in the deepest emotional, physical, spiritual way that two people can become one or can become united in this life. That's the the heart of what he's saying. He's saying that's what marriage is. It's this deep, powerful, intimate thing. But then he says in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he says that, that, that this idea of marriage... And and maybe even one of the reasons why God instituted marriage the way that he did is to give us a physical, emotional, and spiritual look at the type of intimacy that should exist between us and Jesus. 
And he says it's a profound mystery. And that means it's, it's difficult to fully comprehend. It's difficult to fully understand. But the heart of what this means is, is that when, when you think about what Jesus did, Jesus left heaven. Jesus left his father. Jesus left his glory and, and, and the, the paradise that was his life. And he came to the earth all right, to suffer and to die for our sins so that our sins would be paid for so that we could have a relationship with the God who created us. And the, the, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ and we, we trusted Christ, uh, the finished work of Jesus on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sins. And we put our faith in Jesus that we weren't just forgiven, but that we were fully and completely forgiven and that Jesus filled us with his spirit. He made us sons and daughters of God and he dwells with us and we, we dwell with him. That's not something that happens in some future place or some future heaven or some future growth or maturity. The moment that you put your faith in Christ, the moment that you become authentically, genuinely saved by the cross and the grace that was given to us through the cross, Christ now dwells with us, his spirit dwells with us and we dwell with him. And this is, if you wanna look at what it looks like, this is it. Christ clings to us, he holds on to us and we have become one spirit with Christ. That this is, not in a future tense, this is right now, every believer's relationship with Jesus. That is the type of intimacy and closeness and connection that should exist in our lives. And to, to get to James really fast, I'm actually gonna bring my wife up on stage and ask her to help me really fast because I want this image to just stick with us. If you don't know, this is Courtney. This is my wife. Go ahead and give her a hand clap. She hates everything that is happening right now. This is the last place she ever wants to be. The first service, I guess I was all excited and I shook her a lot. And the media team was like, it looked like you were strangling her. So I'm, I'm not gonna do that this time. Uh, but I, I did it. <laughs> I can't help it. I have ADD, so I sway naturally. I'll tell you the romantic story of how we met. I stole her away from someone else. It was great. Uh, we were, this girl asked me to go on a double date in college. And she, she said, hey, would you want to go out on Friday? I'll bring a friend, you bring a friend, and we'll just have a double date. And I was like, sure, it sounds good. Well, she made the mistake of bringing Courtney. And halfway through dinner, I decided I was on a date with the wrong girl. And so I texted my buddy, and I was like, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. When I leave, switch chairs, because when I come back, I'm gonna, my, my new date's going to be with her. And he said, I think this is a bad idea. And I said, it's happening. So you can be as much a part of it as you want to be. And when I came back, I, he was scooted over. I sat down, uh, and the, the, the night ended with me kissing you. No. It was good. It was good. <laughs> she, she told her friend, she was like, please don't let me kiss him on the first date. She failed at that. It was so good. <laughs> the kids are here, so we won't, we won't go farther than that. I apologize to all the parents. This is not Katie's fault. This is my fault. I love this woman. And, I, and I, what I want to do is I want to I introduce to you in this way what the heart of James is about to speak to. He's about to speak to people that do to Christ uh, what I, the scenario that I'm about to give you with me and her. Now, I want you to imagine if I came to Courtney and I said, Courtney, I love you, babe. Not with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but I love you a whole bunch. And I want to spend 90% of my time with you. 
I want to, most nights, almost every night, I want to go to sleep with you, and I want to wake up with you in the morning. I want to raise our kids with you. Uh, I want to I go on vacation with you. I want to grow old with you. Year, many, 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 many years from now, I, I want to die with you like the notebook, holding hands with each other. That's, that's what I want. But there's one or two other girlfriends that I want to keep in my life. Now, this one, she's sweet and smiley, and she's quiet. She cut my throat in the middle of the night, just to throw that out there. But what if I came there and I said, hey, babe, I want not many, just three to five. And are you judging me right now? And I said, babe, I, and listen, I'm still, you're still my favorite by far. And, you're, and, I, and, and 90% of the time, I'm, I'm going to give you my life. And I'm going to grow up. And I just, but I want, I want these other ladies in my life. How do you think this would go? <laughs> Doghouse, cemetery. Uh, at a minimum, let me tell you what would happen. Because anytime, I, anytime that I even get up, my voice raises just a little bit, these big brown eyes fill with tears. And then I just start looking for a noose to end it all because hurting her breaks my heart. But let me tell you what would happen. If I came there and I said that to her, and basically what I would be saying was, Courtney, you aren't enough. And I'm gonna keep these other things in my life and I need you to figure out how to be okay with it and just deal with it. It would shatter her heart. It would grieve her spirit. It would, it would hurt her in a deep way and she would cry and she would weep. Another thing that would happen is no matter how much time I gave her, no matter how hard I tried during that 90%, the intimacy that we would have would be completely gone. There would be no closeness, there would be no nearness because of these other ladies that are in my life. Even if I'm giving her 90%, even if I'm going to bed with her and waking up with her and raising kids with her and I wanna, she's my favorite and she's the one I wanna go with. If I just arrogantly keep these other lovers in my life and demand that she be okay with it, even if she stayed, and even if, if, if she didn't leave the house, and even if, if she didn't leave me and we stayed married, the intimacy and the connection would be greatly hindered to complete dissipation. And what James is about to teach us is that that is what we at different times and different seasons of our life, that is what we do to God. That we come to Christ and we say, I know that you came to the earth for me. I know that you suffered and died for me. And I know that I only have my name written in the Lamb's book of life and I only have eternity because of what you did on the cross for me and you have given me my salvation completely free and I am utterly secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But while I'm on earth, Jesus, you are not enough for me. And I'm gonna keep these other uh, things in my life and I'm gonna need you, Jesus, to figure out how to be okay with it. That is the situation that James is about to hit in our life. And with that full context, I wanna go into that and I want us to give my beautiful wife a hand clap. I didn't shake you. I didn't make you talk. 
you. So you're welcome. You're welcome. I love you. <laughs> I, want to, I want to move to James really fast. And, and, and the first few verses of James 4, 1 through 3, James is simply about to establish that in the church that he's writing to, and you need to understand that he is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who's put their faith in Jesus. He's about to establish that there is unrestrained passion that is ruling their life and that there is unrepented, active sin in their life. And this is the heart of what he's, he's speaking to in James 4, 1 through 3. Now, these specific sins might not relate to you, but that doesn't matter. The heart of what we need to see is what is God's response or, or what is the Spirit's response when there is unrestrained passion and unrestrained, unrepentant, active sin in our life. What, what, what is actually happening in our relationship with God? What does that look like and how do we fix it? So this is what James 4, 1 through 3 says. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your lusts or your desires of your heart are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." So let me just clarify that in a universal way. What, what James is saying, he's trying to establish in their hearts, he's trying to let them know the issues that are in their life because he's about to respond to it. But the, the overall heart, he's saying, th this is the lifestyle he's, he's talking about, that we are, have unrestrained, meaning there is some passion, there's some lust, there's some desire in our heart uh, for things that are not of God and that it's unrestrained, that it's what's driving us, that's what's fueling us. It's not our love or our passion for God, but it's the love and the passion that we have for the world, for the things of the world, for the culture, and for sinful things. And the second thing he's establishing is that there is unrepented active sin, meaning that there right now in your life, there is ongoing active sin that you have zero remorse about and you have, you have no repentance whatsoever about it. It's just a part of your life. And that the vast majority of your time spent with God is asking or believing or trying to get God to bless you so that you can succeed as you give your life away to the culture and to the world around you. So this is the heart of what James, he, he's speaking to all of us because I believe that every single one of us at different seasons in our life can find ourselves in this place and never realize it. That drift is a slow drift. I've been there. I've been there even as a pastor. So I need you to understand that this, this might not hit you right now today, but it also might hit you right now today. And so the heart of what James is saying is I need you to understand that when your relationship with God is, is only about what he can do for you and that your heart is more attached to the culture in the world and succeeding in the world than it is to God. And that there's unrestrained passion and lust in your heart driving you. And that there's unrepented active sin in your life. He's about to describe, he's about to use one word to describe that season of our life or that lifestyle. And this is the word he uses in James 4, 
Verse four, you adulterous people. So for James and and for Paul and for Peter and for John and for, for the writers of scripture, as the Holy Spirit continued to teach and inspire them, the Holy Spirit looks in to this lifestyle and the Holy Spirit calls it adulterous. It's spiritual adultery because of the type of connection that we actually have with Jesus. He clings to us. He died for us and he deeply loves us. And he is not just our king. He's not just our God. He's not just our high priest. He is our everything. He's our everything. And he is worthy to be the one and only. He is enough, whether we treat him like that or not. And to have this type of lifestyle, this type of unrestrained passion, this type of unrepented act of sin, and our only real relationship or connection or relational connection to Christ is us trying to get God to help us and provide for us and give us and do things for us so that we can succeed in this world. He says, all of that right there is spiritual adultery. And he says, and it is an issue. He follows that up with saying, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says, and I want you to listen to this, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There's another translation that says that the spirit he caused to dwell in us yearns for us. It doesn't matter the heart of the truth, what translation, the heart of the truth is, is the same thing that God deeply yearns jealously over you. He deeply loves you in a way you have never been loved, and he deeply loves you in a way you have never loved somebody else. He loves you in a way that's hard for the mind to fully understand. He loves you so much, he thought of you, he designed you, he formed you in your mother's womb, and when sin got a hold of your heart, instead of destroying you, he died for your sins. He has proven his deep love for you, and he is clinging on to you, and he will never let you go. What we're not talking about, and I need to be so clear here, what we're not talking about is salvation, or God's love for us, or our place in heaven, All of that is caught up in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about is while we're living on this earth, the intimate connection that we have with Christ and how unrestrained passion and unrepentant active sin hinders that day-to-day relationship that we have with Jesus because he yearns for us and he loves us so deeply and he knows his worth Jesus is never okay with you being fueled and driven by sinful passions and having unrepentant active sin in your life. He's never okay with it. And it can create and will create and does create issues in your relationship with him. It become, you become hostile towards God. Now, this next verse, James 4, 6, is extremely powerful, but also comes with a caution. The first thing he says, and this is so powerful, and you need to highlight this, and you need to remember this every day for the rest of your life. 
he sums all of this up in the first five verses. And then in verse six, he says, but he gives more grace. Now, what that means is, is it doesn't, if you are a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus and you are an authentic follower of Christ, it does not matter how unhealthy your relationship with Jesus comes, there is always more grace. It doesn't matter how sin-ridden your heart becomes, there is always more grace. It doesn't matter how adulterous you become to your relationship with Christ, there is always more grace. It doesn't matter how dark or deep it gets, there is always more grace. That is what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. All right, and you have to remember that. That said, this next verse is equally as important, but comes with some caution. And I wanna teach us this. Uh, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I have to break down these words so that we fully understand this. First, we have to know in the context of, of James 4, when he says the proud, what does he mean? And when he says the humble, what does he mean? And when he says opposes, what does he mean? And when he says give grace, what does he mean? To fully understand this, we have to break those down. So I'm gonna start with the proud. What this means is, is that in this context of James 4, when God opposes the proud, what it means is, is that you have unrestrained, passions in your life, unrepentant, active sin, and it does not bother you at all. Meaning that you have no remorse, there's zero conviction, there's not even guilt, that somehow, somewhere along the lines, that you drifted so far from the relationship that you have with God, that you are completely and utterly and totally okay with this ongoing, active, unrepented uh, sin in your life. And you still come to church and you still do things and you still go and it does not bother you in the least that all of this sin is in your life. That is the height of human arrogance, pride, to be proud, to look into the eyes of Christ and know that he created you, and know that he died to save you, and know that he sealed you with the Holy Spirit, and to know that you're, he, he himself wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and know that he is preparing a place for you for all of eternity, and you look him in the face, and you say, I know this is displeasing, I know that this is sinful, but it does not bother me, and I need you to get over it. All right, and you may not verbalize it, but the actionable way that we live our life says this. Versus the humble, and you need to understand, verse six is being written to both people have sin in their life. But the humble is, and I need you to hear me, this is so important for this message. The humble person is, God, I know this is sinful, and I know 
that it hurts you. I know, I know that it doesn't need to be in my life. And God, I don't want it in my life. But right now, it's got the best of me, and I can't seem to get over it. And I can't keep looking, and I can't keep texting her. I, I, I can't stop going that way. I can't. This is just, it's become a habit. It's become an addiction. It becomes a struggle. And I don't want it, and I want to be delivered from it, but I just can't seem to get over it. And God, I need your help. That's the difference. That's the significant difference between the proud and the humble in the context of James 4. And so what he says is, I'm gonna oppose the proud. I'm gonna oppose the proud. This is one of the scriptures that people struggle heavily with in the New Testament because they're like, well, God's not against me. No, he's against the sin in your life and he loves you enough to oppose you so that he can deliver you from it. In, in Psalm 32 we, there's, there's several repentant psalms that David wrote. And David was a man after God's own heart. But David committed some pretty heinous sins in his life. But the difference between David being a man after God's own heart is that David had a habit of humility and repentance before the Lord. And so there's several Psalms that David wrote. One the most famous is Psalm 51, where he just repents. This was the part where he had an affair with Bathsheba. Uh, she uh, became bearing a child. He tried to cover that up. It failed, so he had her husband murdered. Uh, and then eventually God got his attention and he utterly repented of the sin and God restored him. So David very much more than most in scripture, I believe, understands what James is trying to say here. And in Psalm 32, he writes a psalm to try to encourage people to repent and acknowledge their sins. And we see something beautiful in here, and it, it will teach us exactly when it says in James 4 that God opposes the proud. Psalm 32 is going to teach us exactly what that looks like practically. This is what Psalm 32, starting with verse one says. It says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David starts off up front. He says, repentance and forgiveness is the greatest blessing that God could ever give you. In another psalm, he writes to God, I think it's Psalm 132, he says, God, if, if, if you were a God who held our iniquities against us, who could ever stand in your presence? But with you is forgiveness that we might revere you. So he thanks God that he is a God of forgiveness, otherwise we would never have a shot. And so he's trying to teach you before he even gets into the difficulty part of this. He says up front, God is a forgiving God and he will bless you immensely with forgiveness. And this is the greatest blessing that you could ever experience in your life. He then moves on to talk about a season of his life when he had unrestrained passion, when he had unrepented sin unacknowledged, unconfessed sin, and he was trying to keep silent about it, meaning he was trying to keep it from the Lord because he wanted it in his life, and he, 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 didn't, want, he didn't want to be delivered from it for a season. And this is what God did, and this is where we see how God opposes us when we fall into those seasons. Uh, in verse uh, 3, Psalm 32, verse 3, it says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day. Verse four, for day and night, your hand, God's hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was drained as in the summer heat. He said, then, because God's heavy hand was on me, because he zapped my strength, because he brought difficulty in my life, and this is the, one of the main points of this message, and you need to hear me. God never opposes you, ever. God never puts his heavy hand on you, ever, to destroy you, but always to deliver you, always. And so as David felt God's heavy hand on him, we don't know if this was hours, days, weeks, or months, but we know that eventually God's hand was so heavy on David that he brought his sin and he stopped being silent about it and he opened up and he trusted the Lord with his sin. He says in verse five, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then in verse 10, he writes this near the end of the Psalm. He said, many are the sorrows of the wicked but loving devotion surrounds him who trusts in the Lord. In the context of Psalm 32, what is trusting the Lord? It's trusting the Lord with your sin, with your iniquity, with your struggle, with your weakness. David says, I am telling you right now, if you try to keep this sin secret and you try to keep it ongoing in your life and you have no remorse and you have no conviction and it's just an unrestrained passion that's ruling over you and you are in love with the world and in love with the culture and giving every second of your life to this and you have unrepentant, active sin in your life and he said, God's hand will be on you until you come back to him and trust him with that sin. He says, but the second that you acknowledge it, the second that you confess it, the second that you trust God with your sin. He's not only going to forgive you, he's going to surround you with his loving devotion. The heart of what I need you to hear about repentance, the heart of what I need you to hear that David is teaching us is that God deeply loves you so much that there is not an ounce of difficulty he will not walk you through if it means you are delivered and free at the end of it. He loves you so much in the same way that we love our children. Uh, and we bring discipline into our life and difficulty in their life to try to save their life, this is what God does to us. God is not okay with that sin because he knows that sin is destroying you and he wants to deliver you from it. And so when James says he opposes the proud, this is the heart of what he means. It means that God will at times, when you have unrestrained passion and unrepentant active sin in your life, he will at times bring a heavy hand on your life, not to destroy you, but to drive you to repentance so that he can deliver you from it and surround you with loving devotion. That's the God that we serve. Now, James then follows this with teaching us the steps of repentance by teaching us what we need to do. It starts with this in, in James 4, 7. And this is, this is a difficult one, I think, at times. But it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, so repentance begins by you acknowledging that somewhere along the lines, you got out of alignment with God. 
that somewhere along the lines, you stop submitting and you stop uh, cherishing, you stop bowing your knee down to Christ, that somewhere along the lines, you started to give your heart to the world, you started to give your heart to the culture, you started to give your heart to those unrelenting, unrestrained passions, you started to give your heart to this sin, and that you've drifted so far that you're not in alignment with God anymore and that you're more in alignment with the world, the culture, and the devil himself. This is a difficult, difficult thing to accept. He says, but this starts with this. The first thing is to recognize somewhere along the lines I drifted. So I'm turning back and I'm submitting back to God. I want to start giving Jesus my whole heart. He goes on in verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's two big things that you need to know about this. One, if you have to draw near to God, it's because you're not near him right now. And so I wanna speak to that really fast. One of the greatest signs, and David speaks to this multiple times in the Psalms. We see this active even in the Old Testament in the life of the people. We see it active in certain aspects of the New Testament. I've seen it active in my life. That there are moments and there are times when my heart shifts and goes a different direction and my desires shift and they go a different direction and they begin uh, to give in to some of those, those passions or those lusts or those desires that show up in my heart and I begin to go down that path and I begin to chase things and, and I even begin to have sin in my life. And one of the things that begins to happen very, very quickly is I start to lose the joy of my salvation. I start to lose that peace that comes when God is so near and so active. I start to lose that intimate connection in his presence. The word of God starts not to be so loud and clear. The reason that this is, and I need you to hear me, the reason that this is that the Bible teaches us in multiple places and in different ways, but none more clearly when it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sins that we can grieve the heart of God, that we can even quench the work of the Spirit. It's not that he leaves you. It's not that he forsakes you. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that he's not pulling you back to himself. It's not that he's angry with you. It's that your heart has gone so far that in order to get your attention and to begin to draw you back, his presence begins to dissipate. His hand gets lifted just a little bit and the activity of the spirit wanes. The peace begins to disappear and the joy of your salvation begins to shift. This is New Testament language for what David described as his heavy hand being on me and his strength being taken. And he says, so when you feel that, the only thing that you need to do, hear me, the only thing that you need to do is turn your heart back around and start drawing near to God and God will draw near to you. In the exact same way that the prodigal son, when he began to return home, the father ran out to meet him, embraced him, hugged him, kissed him, clothed him, and threw him a party. He is waiting on you to draw near to him because he wants to draw near to you. He goes down and he says, uh, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is James's way of saying, go to the throne of grace. Get to Jesus. I wanna be so clear right here 
because I, I, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when people hear something that I did not mean to say or did not feel. I need you to hear me right here and right now. What James is not saying, James is not saying cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and then when you're clean and you're pure, then come to God. That is not what he's saying. He's saying come to God to be cleansed and purified. He's saying come to the throne of grace with your sin. Come to the throne of grace with your struggle, with your weakness, with your addictions. You come. It doesn't matter how dark. It doesn't matter how evil. It doesn't matter how wicked. It doesn't matter how long it's been. It does not matter what is going on in your life. He says the first place that you need to bring your sin is not the church building, is not somebody else, is not some devotional. The first place you need to bring your sin is to Jesus Christ himself. Christ paid a significant price, not not just to be your God and King, but to be your high priest, to step into you with that moment and to help you be delivered from that sin. There is only one person who can take that sin from you, and that is the one who died to have that power, and that is Jesus Christ. So yeah, let's celebrate that. That is as Jesus, that is epic. And so what I don't want you to say, because this is not what James is saying, and this is 100% not what I'm saying. It's not saying you draw near to God, get cleaned, and then you can connect with him. That's not the point. The point is you draw near to God, bring your sin with you, stop by the throne of grace, uh, give it to Jesus, and as that whole process is taking place, God is pouring his loving devotion out on your life. All right, that's the heart of what I'm saying. That's the heart of what James is saying, and that's what you need to hear this morning. James has one more hard line. He has one more difficulty, and I struggled with this for quite some time. I really did, for years, actually, because it, it didn't, I, I just couldn't grasp it. But this is what James 4, 9 says. He kind of follows this up with this. He says, now, be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And I just... For years, I, I couldn't wrap my head around the heart of what that really meant. And I was like, man, it just doesn't seem like James 4, 9 would be welcome in most modern churches. Like this, I'm, I'm confident Joel Steen hasn't preached on James 4, 9 in a while. <laughs> and so like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm struggling with this, but then the Lord revealed it to me a while back. And I, and I began to get it. The reason James 4, 9 doesn't hit us right and it's we struggle with it is because we rarely ever think about what our sin does to the heart of God. We, we usually only perceive our sin or our relationship with God from God and what he can do for us. And we, we worry about legalism and we worry about hyper grace and we worry about, you know, like, is God mad at us? Is God gonna punish us? And we, we kind of go through it from a very self-focused point of view. Rarely do we ever stop to think about what our sins do to the heart of Jesus. There is a scripture in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that talks about godly grief or godly sorrow versus worldly grief and worldly sorrow. And it's, it's in the context of repentance. It's in the context of sin. This is what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. So let me, 
let me break down what worldly sorrow is, because we've all been there, right? Worldly sorrow is when you become anxious and worried and brokenhearted over what sin is going to cost you in this life. Meaning when, when you get caught in sin or sin gets so big that your worldly sorrow is, is this sin gonna cost me my marriage? Is this sin gonna cost me my relationship with my kids? Is this sin gonna cost my job? Is this sin gonna uh, cause me to have to go to jail? Is this sin gonna cause me to lose my reputation? Is this sin gonna X, Y, Z? That it's all about what the sin or the weakness or the struggle is gonna take from you. That's worldly sorrow and it's utterly worthless. It's utterly worthless. It's gonna lead you to death. There's no value to it. Godly sorrow or godly grief, on the other hand, is where you become very aware of what your sin has done to the heart of God. If I had time and I don't, I would take you all the way through Psalm 51. I would encourage you to go read that Psalm because it's David. It's David right after Bathsheba, right after the murder. A prophet comes and exposes the sin. David falls for seven days, he fasts and he weeps before the Lord. And somewhere in that seven days or right after that seven days, he writes Psalm 51. And he, he, he looks at God and he says, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. Now, he had an affair, all right? He, he, he murdered a man. He sinned against some other people. So what's his heart? He's saying, I am fully aware of what my sin has done to you, God. And I know that it is against you and you alone. And through all of Psalm 51, which you don't see, you don't see one ounce of David going, now don't take the throne from me. You know, let me keep being the king. Let me do this. He, he, he doesn't care at all about earthly things. In fact, he says, God, I've sinned against you and you alone, and you are right in whatever judgment you have against me. He says, whatever you think needs to happen, you're right in that judgment. So whatever it is, you do it. But the one thing he says, but God, don't take your spirit from me. See, this was the heart of David. This is true repentance where he recognizes what his sin does to God. Because David, unlike us so often, David knows the heart of God. David knows how loving God is. David knows how good God is. David knows that forgiveness is with God. And so when he sinned in that great grievous way, the greatest concern for David was what it did to the heart of God and he repented because of it and God lifted him up over and over and over again. And so what, what James 4 9 is saying, he's saying, listen, if, if you have unrestrained passion and, and, and you're, you're being fueled by these sinful desires and you have unrepented active sin in your life and it is creating no issues for you, you're totally fine with it. And there's, there's no grieving whatsoever. There's no mourning. You have laughter and you have joy. What James is trying to prove to you here is something's deeply unhealthy. Something is deeply wrong. And he said, when you come to terms with how much God really loves you and how good he really is and how wicked sin really is, and you realize how much it hurts and grieves the Holy Spirit, how much it hurts the heart of God, he said, that would break you in the same way if I had to bring Courtney into a room and tell her that I have sinned against her, that I've been unfaithful to her, that I've sinned in this way to her, it would shatter her heart and that would break me down to nothing. 
In fact, as I've struggled with certain things in my life, knowing the pain it would cause her has relented and caused me to stay more righteous in certain areas. This is the heart of what James is speaking to. Recognize, recognize what your sin does to God and let it break you down. Let it humble you. He sums the whole thing up in James 4.10, the whole previous nine verses he sums up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Trust God with your sin. Bring your sin to the throne of grace. Bring your sin to the feet of Jesus. He sympathizes with you. He empathizes with you. He knows how hard it is to live in this life. That's what the Bible teaches. He says, because we have a high priest such as this, with all confidence, come to the throne of grace with your sin so that you can receive mercy and help. God is driving all of us to that place, never to destroy us, but always to deliver us because God wants to have an intimate powerful connection with you. He yearns for you. He desires so much to have a deep, powerful, present, real connection with you day to day. And when you repent, he will lift you up. I wanna read this and we'll close with this. True repentance will always result in a purified, healthy, powerful relationship with God that is filled with joy, peace, and most importantly, intimacy. So this morning, it does not matter how far you've gone, how dark it's gotten, and how long you've been there. God is calling you home. He's calling you to the throne of grace. He wants to deliver you. And the reason he wants to deliver you and the reason he wants you to be free from that is because he wants a deep, close connection with you. He wants his presence and his spirit to be active in your life day in and day out. If you need to come to the throne of grace every hour on the hour in certain seasons, you do that. But let repentance and let the throne of grace become the greatest habit in your life. And I promise you over time, those sins will dissipate. And the longer you bring those things and the more honest you are with God and the more you acknowledge it, the more humble you are, the higher he lifts you up and the closer you become, the more active the spirit is, the more your mind's renewed and the faster you're transformed into the image of Jesus. I'm thankful we serve a forgiving God, amen.